0: Hello, I'm Kyle Caldwell and this is On The Money, a weekly look at how to get the best out of your savings and investments. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the banking turmoil of the past couple of weeks. I was having a think about who could help make sense of it all and explain what caused the sudden collapse of a couple of US banks and European bank Credit Suisse, and who better than someone who's at the coalface and is a specialist in investing in bank stocks. So I caught up with Nick Brind, full manager of the Polar Capital Global Financials Investment Trust. There's a lot to take from the interview, and we cover a lot of ground, including whether this all has the makings of the next systemic banking crisis. But I started by asking Nick to explain what's been happening, and if the collapse of two US banks is linked to what happened at Credit Suisse.
1: I'm... Undoubtedly, it's been an extraordinary couple of weeks, and there's quite a lot to unpack. You know, I suppose the key question is, you know, why, when the sector so well capitalized and flush with liquidity, have so many bank failed, you know, so quickly? I mean, to the to the question you asked, they are linked and they're, they're not linked, and we can we can we can go into that. But Silicon Valley Bank's failure, I mean, that can be explained by you know weak regulation or supervision and risk management. i.e. so it, it, didn't hedge its interest rate risk to offset large losses on its securities portfolio. So when when you're looking at a bank, when you think a bank is going to fail, you worry about loans failing, people defaulting on loans. And yet the problem has been for banks recently is what's gone on their securities portfolio. In the case of Signature Bank, it was slightly different. It was exposed to crypto and that obviously unnerved depositors. And so unlike the GFC. This crisis wasn't about toxic assets. It was about you know these mark-to-market losses on Silicon Valley Bank and other banks' balance sheets. So in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, it owns U.S. Treasuries, U.S. mortgage bank securities, some very low-risk loans to private equity funds, and you know as a consequence of those losses, um, it was technically insolvent. You know following a sort of failed capital raise, depositors saw that and took their money out. Now. You know, we turn to Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse is kind of notorious for poor risk management and poor profitability. So in you know it's two thousand twenty one annual report, um, you know, there's twelve pages of dedicated to litigation issues. Now, bank investors could look at Credit Suisse's balance sheet and say, look, it's got hundred billion Swiss francs of capital that it could burn through before depositors lose a single cent. But ultimately, you know, the average person on the street can't read a bank's balance sheet. Credit Suisse lost the confidence of investors and depositors. And and, and they, you know, withdrew their money uh, on the back of that. Now, you know, the timing of its failure, uh, I think that was obviously accelerated because of what's happened in the U.S. But ultimately, you know, the reasons for its failure were, were, you know, very much idiosyncratic. And so, despite the Swiss regulators, you know, confirming it was solvent last week, at the weekend they forced, you know, Credit Suisse to sell itself to UBS, and in the process, you know, wrote down 81 debt holders to, to zero.
0: And naturally, I mean, you've, you've just touched on this in, in your first answer. But given we've had the global financial crisis, obviously, well over a decade ago now, but then shortly after that was, was then was the European sovereign debt crisis there are concerns about whether this could be the makings of the next systemic banking crisis. So what are your thoughts on that?
1: You know, our view, this isn't you know, GFC2, but it is, a, you know, it is a mini banking crisis. And you know, ultimately, we know the reasons why those banks were seen as susceptible, but the weakness with all of them was uh, they had a high percentage of their depositors were uninsured. So, unlike you know, you, you think about it here in the UK, 85,000 pounds of your any deposit you have in the bank is insured. In the US, it's 250,000 dollars. Now, in the case of Silicon Valley Signature Bank, both of those banks had a very, very high percentage of depositors uninsured. Both you know, much higher than the, the you know the, the competitors and peers. Consequently, they're susceptible to that loss of confidence. So, in that sense, you know, it, it's not a systemic banking crisis. Now, having said that, you know, there is a risk that you know we see more bank failures, but you know, the probability that is very, very low, but it's not zero. And U.S. authorities potentially need to you know step up to the plate and do more than they've done so far. I mean, we've had some mixed messages from Janet Yellen over the last couple of evenings. But having said that, some of the data we're getting out from the Fed suggests that some of those deposit outflows from smaller banks have slowed. So, you know, for us, it's, you know, very much uh, you know, uh, a wait and see, but, you know, it, it's not GFC2.
0: So rather than it being GFC2, does those recent events that's happened does that reflect the consequences of interest rates going up so quickly over the past year or so? It's a point I've seen, you know, some commentators make, including the BlackRock Investment Institute. Um, they put an a note out saying that the market gyrations are not rooted in a banking crisis, but rather are evidence of financial cracks resulting from the fastest interest rate hike campaigns since the 1980s. So, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that, and you know, whether you agree or disagree.
1: Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm in complete agreement. I mean, every time the Fed has raised rates, something breaks. And someone was asking you know, you know, a couple of weeks ago, how come we haven't seen any financial contagion uh, as a consequence of rising rates outside the you know, LDI debacle that we saw uh, last autumn? And very much, this is it. You know, the market Financial markets find the find the weaknesses, the cracks, and as you know, as a consequence, you know those banks were you know you know found wanting. And the question then goes, well, you know, who else is at risk? And you know, you can look at we can we can you know touch on this in a minute. Who's susceptible? You know, where's where's the leverage in the system? Who's susceptible to you
0: know
1: rates having risen? You know. So much and so quickly in the last year.
0: So, going forward, are there any other risks that are like lurking in the banking system that may come to light this year due to rising interest rates? And I was wondering if you could identify one, you know, if you could pick out one vulnerability, what would it be?
1: The biggest concern in the short term has been the impact of rising interest rates on obviously, you know, underlying you know, economic growth. And we've seen banks tighten their lending standards, historically you know, there's a strong correlation when they tighten their you know, lending standards, they're allowing less credit into the economy, that's led to more defaults and, and, and obviously business failures. But the one that's probably you know, most at essential at the moment is uh, commercial real estate. So we've known for a few years that you know, retail or shopping malls in the US as they call them you know, obviously the Amazon effect, dropping uh, footfalls and things like that has led to you know, a, lo- a lot of weakness in, in, in real estate companies, property companies focused on, on, on retail and shopping. And that's now extended to office, you know, obviously partly the consequence of COVID and working from home. And that's, that's the biggest risk. And, and, you know, with this crisis, regional banks in the US are responsible for about eighty percent of commercial real estate lending. That's where the you know that's where the biggest, you know, biggest risk uh, is from our point of view.
0: And with the investment trust that you manage, Polar Capital Global Financials Trust, how do you manage risk when investing in banks? I think you've got over half the trust is in bank shares um, at the moment. So what are the key things that you scrutinize and and I think it also be remiss for me to not also ask: Did you have any exposure to the, you know, the two US banks that failed, and did you have any exposure to Credit Suisse?
1: When we're looking at uh, an individual bank, there's a number of metrics that are, you know, very important to us to to get comfort. Firstly, um, topically with what's happened, obviously in the states, is funding. So we like banks that have good, strong funding franchises. You know. Ideally, retail deposits, obviously they have a lot of insurance, so the risk of people putting that is low. Similarly operational deposits from you know, corporates, they tend not to move those regularly because of obviously the uh, difficulty in doing so. So funding is important and in a sense, you know, the surprise of this crisis is banks, unlike during GFC, have been flush with liquidity. Secondly, um, the strength of the balance sheets, how much capital? Again, as we saw in the GFC, banks were thinly capitalized. Um, as a result of obviously changes in regulation today, banks have got vastly more capital. So we look at that in a number of different ways. So capital is important because that's there obviously to absorb losses for, you know, when, when obviously individuals or corporates default. And then probably thirdly, it's profitability. You, know, you want a bank to be making a decent return on its capital for the risks it's taking uh, from a point of view, whether that's you know, uh, mortgages, consumer lending, corporate or, or, or whatever. And in that sense, that was one of Credit Suisse's weaknesses, weak profitability. If you have underlying good profitability, then you can wear more losses than a weaker bank. And then, when we're thinking from a portfolio perspective, you know, if you're buying, let's say, a JP Morgan or an HSBC, you're buying a much bigger bank that's got a much more diversified loan portfolio across. Certainly, in the case of HSBC across you know different geographies. So, if there's a downturn in one industry or one country, you know, a bigger bank is not going to be affected. You know, when we look at the US, you can buy banks that are just focused on one state. So if there's a downturn in that particular you know, economy, so let's take California, you know, if it's the technology economy or whatever, then banks in that economy are going to hit much harder. So you, you're thinking, okay, I want less exposure to you know, a smaller bank that's got a much more concentrated loan portfolio. We've owned Signature and Silicon Valley over the years. At the time when Silicon Valley Bank announced its capital raise, we did have a very, very small holding in the trust, about 35 basis points. Uh, We sold it as soon as we saw the announcement, uh, took a small loss. I think the market cap at the time of selling was still $9 billion. We didn't expect it to fail uh, as quickly as it did. Um, So in that sense, we, 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 we got out thankfully quickly. And uh, we, we'd made good money out of it over the years. Uh, Credit Suisse, we didn't have any exposure.
0: And was it also reassuring for the banking sector in general that you know policymakers stepped in so quickly?
1: Yes. In a sense, as we always remember, you know, banking is, a, is, is in the trust business. And if you lose that trust and confidence, uh, and there's many examples of, the, of this over the years, there's very, very little of the bank you know, can do. So, you know, obviously lender of last resort facilities from central banks, the ability of, you know, authorities to step in and provide that reassurance. So we've seen this in the U.S. with funding lines to uh, U.S. banks so they can facilitate some of the outflows from deposits. I think there's probably more that they'll need to do. Um, Certainly the actions of the Swiss over the weekend to force the sale of Credit Suisse to UBS has to some extent, reduced Sintel risk in markets, but then what they've done in wiping out 81 bondholders has created perhaps other unintended consequences. They've gone against what they call creditor hierarchy, so equity holders are given some money, bondholders are wiped out. As we know, it's normally the other way. You know, creditors don't start to get wiped out until equity holders are being wiped out. So.
0: Yeah, it's early days, but it's definitely been helpful. And finally, there's been some notable share price falls over the past couple of weeks for bank shares. Has this piqued your interest at all? Ah, uh, yeah, I mean,
1: yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm a value guy at heart. It's you know, it's very difficult not to. So, two metrics we could look at: uh, global banks today trade on a 0.9 times price to book. Um, that's about so, you know the 20% lowest of the you know range of valuations they've traded in in the last sort of 15 or so years or we could look at P multiple so two years out 24 estimates uh, they're trading at 7.4 times now to put that in perspective there's only around 70 days in the last 14 years as in since the GFC when banks have traded at or below that level so you know two percent of the time one day and 50 you know, three months out of 14 years. And when you think we've had a Eurozone crisis, we've had negative interest rates, we've had a global pandemic, war in Europe, and now another mini banking crisis, uh, I mean, that's comparing value. So, yeah, you know, there's, there's definitely a lot of value there. Our investment trust, the, you know, the Proto Capital Financial Global Financial Trust, is now trading close to a 10% discount. So you know, there's a, you've got an opportunity. You can buy a basket of banks and other financials at a, at a discount to NAV. So yeah, there's very much. It's uh, it's definitely piqued our interest.
0: My thanks to Nick, and thank you for listening. You can join the conversation, ask questions, and tell us what you would like us to talk about via email on otm at ii.co.uk. And in the meantime, you can find more information and practical pointers on how to get the most out of your investments on the Interactive Investor website at ii.co.uk.